Today, it is my great honor to once again introduce Dr. Graham Cole, uh, one of my favorite theologians over at Beeson. He is born and raised uh, in Australia, lived there until he was about 50 years old, left there to preach, and actually has has preached and taught on just about uh, the entire globe, except that maybe the Antarctica, I'm not sure, but you have uh, preached on many continents. Uh, Penguins are next. Penguins are next. That's good. Dr. Cole will preach to us after we sing Rock of Ages, hymn number 685. Our great God and Father, I pray that what I say now may please you and benefit your people. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Great to be with you here at the Advent and to share in this Lenten preaching series. Now, let me just say, coming to Birmingham in 2011 meant for us, my wife and I, getting into the garden after years of uh, living in a condo. And that was quite an experience because uh, my wife and I are really the terminators of the garden world. But we are doing our best to keep things alive. But I did have a shock in that we have this wonderful pecan tree, sorry, pecan tree, in our backyard. And uh, when I looked out, just got here to Birmingham, it looked like a giant spider had put web over all the lower branches. I had no idea what it was, but isn't Google great? So I found out that it was something called webworm. And I had to cut off those branches. And what I noticed was those severed branches soon died. Because they were cut off from the tree. Our Lord Jesus saw a deep truth in that simple gardening horticulture fact. And I want this time with you to explore something of that great truth as he taught about it in John chapter 15. That's the key text. And the first thing to note about it is the setting is the upper room. It's the Passion Week. Jesus will soon be going to the cross to die for your sins and mine. And so he's teaching his disciples in the privacy of that upper room. And what he says in chapter 15 of John and verse 1 is this, a famous claim, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. The true vine, the real deal, By that, he meant he was all that Israel was meant to be, all that God's people were hoping for. You see, in the Old Testament, the vine was a symbol of God's people Israel. A vine under the care of God himself. Like in Psalm 80, where we read the psalmist say, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. In other words, God replanted his vine to a place where it could flourish, where it could thrive. From being in Egypt, as it were, to being in the promised land. Jesus is saying, though, I am really what that is all about. I am the true vine. I think St. Paul makes a similar point when he wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 5 and says, Christ is the head of the church and we, as believers, are members of his body. Head and members. But in John 15, the vine and the branches. The vine and the branches. And what Jesus goes on to teach there is two ways to live. As the Bible so often does, it places people at a crossroads where either abiding or remaining on that vine or we do not. So let me ask, if you abide, remain on that vine, what happens? Well, he says, I am the vine, this is verse 5 of chapter 15, you are the branches, If you remain or abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, though, you can do nothing. If you remain in me and my words remain or abide in you, ask whatever you wish to do, wish for, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So I want to be practical today and ask the question, well, how do we abide as branches on this vine? I think if you read John's Gospel as a whole, the answer is pretty clear. We abide by trust in him who is the vine and the source of our life. And when you think about it, trust is what binds persons together. Whether in a marriage or in a business partnership or in a friendship for that matter. Now, just imagine someone asks you, look, is so-and-so your friend? And you say, oh yes, they really are. But you know, I couldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. Well, that would seem a little odd to me. Trust is the glue of personal relations. And if we're going to have a personal walk with the living Christ, trust in him will be crucial. But it's a trust that obeys. It's a trust that obeys what Jesus says. My words. Who obeys my words. So, Let me then explore the alternative, explore what one theologian called the logic of the alternative. If we don't abide, what happens? He says in verse 6, If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Just like that webworm infected branches of my pecan tree, they had to go. So how do we not abide? It's the alternative to trusting in Jesus. It's unbelief. It's unbelief that doesn't take his words seriously enough to live by them. And as far as John 15 is concerned, the great case in point of someone like that was Judas Iscariot. He indeed was that branch that didn't abide on the vine. That branch that was ultimately cut off. Because we read in chapter 13, just a couple of chapters before this one, it was Judas Iscariot that is identified as the betrayer. 
He is the broken off branch. So what are we to make of this today? Well, there's a lesson for them way back then. For Jesus goes on to say in verse 9 and following, As the Father loved me, so I've loved you, disciples. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this, that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. Greater love has no other than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Now, notice Jesus is speaking to these disciples, not as mere servants, but now as friends in the know. For he says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've I've called you friends. For everything that I've learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. And this is my command. Love each other. I think the fruitfulness that's being talked about here is the fruitfulness of Christian mission. Because in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for those who will believe on the basis of the words of these disciples, as these disciples speak about Jesus to the wider world. And notice, here is a prayer life that's absolutely extraordinary. But, and this is really important, I want to say that We need to observe that these words of Jesus apply, first of all, to those gathered with him in that upper room, his apostles, the ones he describes at the end of the chapter as those who were with him from the beginning. In other words, we're listening in to a conversation. I think that's important because I've met people, I think, who too quickly apply these words, especially about praying, to themselves without observing this context. Like a couple of ladies uh, I know, they did come to a better mind about this. But for some reason, they came to the view that given such promises as this about prayer, just lifted off the page without looking at the context and to whom it was spoken, applied to them. And so they thought if they prayed together for something For three weeks, every day, for three weeks, God would have to give them what they prayed for. Friends, that's not Christian praying, that's magic. Magic is where we try to find some technique that will force the divine to do what we want the divine to do. In fact, uh, and this is just a speculation on my part, but I suspect one reason we don't always get what we pray for the way we want it is that God keeps us from developing a magical idea of relating to him, rather than a personal one. As I say, that uh, is not Christian praying what those ladies were up to. Fortunately, they came to a better mind. That's magic. But there is a lesson here for us today, friends. For although in the first instance we're overhearing Jesus in conversation with his apostles... There is a principle here that applies to you and me, for sure. It's in that old Christian song. I wonder if you know it. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That trust and obey principle 
for discipleship remains. Remember, our text is not about how to become a follower of Jesus, but how to live out the following of Jesus. And following Jesus takes seriously his words, his commandment. Seriously enough to trust them and to act on them. And so what is that commandment? It's there in verse 17. This is my command, love each other. And for followers of Jesus, that should be no surprise. After all, according to Jesus himself in John chapter 13, love is to characterize the Christian. Know that famous statement? I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You should also love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one another. One writer has described this rightly as the mark of the Christian. What does that love look like? Well again, John chapter 13 shows us. It takes the servant's role. It washes the other person's feet. Where Jesus took upon himself to do what the household servant would do in that upper room when no one else did it. And that is provide the hospitality and to wash those dusty feet. In other words, Jesus is saying to disciples, here is a love that serves. A love that serves. It serves. I think that's very different to what one cynical person suggested to me as I was uh, becoming... Familiar with church life as a very new Christian years ago, he told me if I wanted to get on in the Christian life and get on in the church, I needed to embrace the three A's. Attend, agree, and admire. Attend the services, agree with the sermon, and admire the stained glass. What a contrast. Jesus says... Church life is about that service that has the other in mind. Now, of course, we can't serve in all the ways Christ has served us. We can't be Jesus. He is the unique Son of God. He's the only one who, who is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14. He is the only one that can be described as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1.29, who died on that cross that you and I might be forgiven freely, something we embrace by trusting him with the empty hands of faith we receive that gift of a relationship with him that his death provides. We can't be Jesus But as followers of him, we can be like him. So this Lent, let's resolve to follow Christ his way. His way is the way of love, the way of service. And supremely, the way of love knows how to sacrifice. Greater love, remember he said, has no other, no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And on Good Friday's cross, that's exactly what he did. So this led, let me ask, whether we're willing to be found wearing the mark of the Christian. That's the challenge. To trust and obey and to have loving service as that mark. And as for Lent, by all means, 
Let love lead us to give up the cruel word, comment, and the unkind deed. But let's never, never, as followers of him, give up the mark of loving service in his name. Amen. And now, may the God of peace grant you joy and peace in loving service through him who is the true vine, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.